Uh, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. H have you heard that before? Uh, I always thought, I had some vague memory, it was John Wayne who said it, but I uh, did some research and apparently it's from a really bad 1932 B-grade Western called The Western Code. No one's heard of it. I, I saw a brief clip, it's a bad movie, don't, don't bother watching it. Uh, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. It's what happens when two people both want to be in charge and one of them will be disappointed. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. It, it may have been from an old Western movie, but it's also what King Herod said about 2 BC. He's thinking of King Jesus. The town is Jerusalem. Because for Herod, there's now a new king in town. And the old one's not too pleased. As far as Herod saw it, one king, well, that was just right. New contenders were a threat. Herod was in no mood to share his power with anyone. Uh, the trouble started when some astronomers turned up, wise men from probably around Persia. Uh, they'd arrived because they'd noticed a new star. A new star had risen. Uh, they'd worked out somehow that that meant a king of the Jews had been born. Literally a sign in the heavens. And so they turn up at Herod's palace in Jerusalem. It's the obvious place for a new king of the Jews to be born. And so they ask, verse 2, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. This new king was so important, a new star had appeared to herald his birth. Like a 21-gun salute or a trumpet fanfare. The whole cosmos was sitting up and taking notice. And so that's what the wise men want to do as well. When they find him, they want to worship him. The problem was, this was all news to Herod. His wife hadn't given birth. There was no new prince around that he was responsible for. And so this new king, whoever he was, was a threat. And Herod thinks, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. Now, King Herod, uh, it does get slightly confusing, I'll admit. This one is Herod the Great. He had a history of wiping out the opposition. He'd already murdered a wife, three sons, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law and an uncle, all because he thought they were a threat. And they were just normal people. But now the wise men had arrived and they were talking about a new king whose birth was announced by a new star. Verse 3 says, Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. <laughs> uh, it's no wonder with his reputation, because no one was safe. No wonder the whole city was disturbed. So, verse 4, Herod got to work. Uh, first up, interrogating the religious leaders. Where would the Christ, where would the Messiah appear? God's promised chosen rescuer. They tell him Bethlehem was the place, a little town just up the road. The prophet Micah had predicted that. Uh, next up, verse 7, he calls the wise men in. Secretly, he finds out when the star had first appeared. That will give him a birth date, so he'll know how old the boy is he's looking for. And then he points them in the direction of Bethlehem. And he enlists them to do his dirty work for him. 
Listen to his instructions there in verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Yeah, right. Herod's about as likely to worship this new king as Donald Trump is to send a Christmas card to Joe Biden. And so the Magi head off again. But rather than follow Herod's directions, it's the star that leads the way. And so they follow it instead. And verse 9 tells us that the star stopped over the place the child was. It's actually a passive verb. The star was stopped. It didn't just stop of its own will, if it had a will. It was made to stop. In other words, God stopped the star. The God who controls the events of history controlled the star that honoured his son. The star that rose in the sky at his birth, the star that guided the wise man to where he was. God controlled it and stopped it. And do you notice what happened next? It's there in verse 10. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, I don't think it was the star that made them happy. I I think they'd obviously seen the star before. I think it was the fact that the star had stopped. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overjoyed. Because their journey was over. Their searching had finished. They'd finally come home. They may be hundreds of kilometres from where they lived, but they'd come home. The place where life began where life would begin from this point on, where questions were answered, where searching stopped, where things would be put into perspective. They'd arrived. The NIV translation's pretty weak here. They were overjoyed. Yeah. There's actually four different words in the Greek. The old RSV is a, is a pretty accurate translation for what the Greek says. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. To to, to our ears, it sounds like just repetitiveness and you don't need all those extra words. We we just cut them out. But for a Hebrew speaker, uh, those words just are are adjectives piled on adjectives. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they hadn't even met Jesus yet. All that's happened is the stars stopped. That, That comes in verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. Now, two things that perhaps you notice, or maybe you didn't notice it. Just as an aside, they didn't meet Jesus in a stable. They didn't see him in a manger. They met him in a house. And it wasn't a baby, it was a child. He he was a child. So it was sometime after Jesus' birth, after the night the shepherds appeared, There's other information that supports that. Firstly, it's likely that the star appeared at Jesus' birth and it took the wise men a a reasonable period of time to travel once they saw the star, perhaps a number of months. Uh, Secondly, uh, Herod sets an age limit of two years when he sends soldiers to kill the baby boys in Bethlehem. That's verse 16. He'd worked out when Jesus was born and he'd done his sums. 
In fact, as I was thinking about this this week, I noticed it doesn't actually say that they went to Bethlehem at all. Herod tells them to go to Bethlehem, but Luke's Gospel tells us Jesus' family returned to Nazareth after, the dedication, after his dedication at the temple when he was 40 days old. So it's possible, I, I don't think it really matters where the house was, it's possible that they were back in Nazareth. So I think most nativity scenes, most Christmas cards get it wrong when they show the shepherds and the wise men both there together. Almost certainly it's two different events. It makes sense, I think. Luke's Gospel tells us about the shepherds. Matthew's Gospel tells us about the wise men and, and neither mentions the other. So that's all of an aside. I might be wrong. <laughs> uh, but we come to the wise men who finally meet Jesus. And what do they do? Verse 11. They bowed down and they worshipped him. Perhaps a baby, perhaps a small boy. They worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. Their journey was over. They'd found the one they were looking for and they fell down and worshipped. They gave their gifts in recognition and in gratitude to this little boy who embodied God himself who deserved their worship, who deserved not just gifts, but their loyalty and respect, their lives. Their gifts show a God-given insight into Jesus, into his identity and role. They give gold, fit for a king. They give incense, used by priests in offering up prayers. And a strange gift for a baby, myrrh, used to embalm a dead body. So much expectation wrapped up in such a small bundle. Arrives on earth with the backing of the God who controls the stars. The God who prepared his people to expect this king through prophetic messages. This little child destined to be such an awesome, puzzling combination of roles and responsibilities. In those gifts, we see the insight of the Magi that Jesus would be a king, a king over the world, over life and death, over the fate of people. A king had been predicted and promised to David in Isaiah chapter 9. They also saw a priest, someone who would stand between God and man, representing one before the other. Jesus, uh, God had promised a priest, an eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110. The Magi also perceived that this child would be a deathly sacrifice, a life offered in place of others a means of atonement, a suffering servant pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah 53 promised. So somehow the Magi, maybe they'd been reading the Old Testament scriptures, but, but they perceived that this 
small life that had started in such innocence and weakness and promise would end in powerful, loving, violent sacrifice. No wonder they bowed down and worshipped. Well, that's one reaction to Jesus. But the opposite reaction is never far from the surface. Look, look at the very next verse, verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. It's just as well they did. Uh, look at how Herod reacts when he finds out, a, a bit further down in verse 16. When Herod realised he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, two years old and under, in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. Herod and the Magi, two opposite responses to Jesus. Herod was troubled and jealous and threatened and furious. He would do anything to keep Jesus off the throne. And the Magi, they would do anything to see him enthroned, to worship him, to, to offer themselves in service to him. And it's the same today. There are millions of Herods around, puny, deluded kings, looking to control every part of their life, their health, their financial security, their pleasure, their leisure, their choices, refusing to submit to Jesus, always knowing best, ruthless in dealing in any threat to their autonomy. You see, anyone who lives life without Jesus on their throne is just like Herod. They're a Herod. Because it's Jesus who deserves to be king. In fact, he is the king over this cosmos, this whole universe, whether we recognise him or not. He is the king. God sent him to be a priest and a sacrifice, to die in our place, to win our reconciliation back to God, and then he raised him from death, declaring him to be Lord and Messiah, declaring him in the resurrection to be the king over everything. Acts 2.36 tells us that. Philippians 2 says that God exalted Jesus to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. One day that will happen. Every knee will bow before King Jesus, either willingly or unwillingly. Here we see the wise men who, who get in early on that, on that knee bowing, on that worship. They bow, they bow the knee to Jesus as a small boy. Most people are not wise like that. Most people are like King Herod. Most people think life is about looking after themselves, ignoring, reducing the opposition, doing what they want, not what Jesus wants. Now, some people may openly reject Jesus, thumb their nose at him, like King Herod. People may just pretend he's not there act as if he doesn't exist. That, that's probably most Australians, I think. They just ignore him. But, but either way, whether it's active or just ignoring Jesus, 
For most people, if, if Jesus is there, if he's asserting his right to rule their life, for most people they say, that's one king too many. I don't, I don't need another king. I'm king. That attitude is what the Bible calls sin. Setting yourself up on the throne rather than Jesus. Thinking you know better than the God who created you. At its essence, that's what sin is. And God says that deserves his judgment, eternal separation from him. He gives us what we want. We want to be separated from God. He will give that to us. Independence from God for all eternity. People thought being on Herod's bad side was a scary thing, but but that's nothing compared to being on God's bad side. Much better, says Matthew, as he writes this story, to be like the Magi, to be a wise guy. Wisdom recognises the true state of affairs and then acting on it. That's what the Magi did. Recognise Jesus. Submit to him. Fall before him. That's what he deserves. That's where we deserve to be, on our faces before King Jesus. This Christmas we, we give and receive gifts. But how about giving Jesus, King Jesus, the gift he deserves? Our loyalty, our worship, a life committed to serving him as king. The Magi knew that once Jesus arrived, that was one king too many. They couldn't continue to be king while Jesus was king. And so they demitted. They hopped off the throne of their lives. They bowed down and worshipped. And they gave their crown instead to Jesus. And we need to do the same. We need to do that for a first time. And God will make us a new person when, when we become a Christian. Maybe you need to do that this Christmas if you haven't done that before. Many of us have done that though. We need to keep doing that. Each day we need to get up and hop off our throne and put Jesus on the throne for that day. We need to bow before him and submit to his majesty and authority and wisdom. Thank him that he saved us and give him our lives. To give, him, to, to give up the kingship in our career, to give up the kingship in our ambition, to give it up in our plans for how our lives will turn out, our plans for the future. We need to give up our kingship in our marriage, in our singleness, in our health, give up our kingship over our comfort and our pleasure and our, fun, and our financial security. Wise guys give up their kingship every day and put Jesus on the throne. May we be wise guys this Christmas. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We bow before your Son, the Lord Jesus, the one who you set a star in place to announce his birth. We come before you this day and we offer you ourselves, our lives, our ambitions, our dreams. We want you to be honoured in our lives. And we pray these things for Jesus' honour and glory. Amen.